As clinicians, you make vital fluid and drug decisions for your patients every day with a key question in mind. Will my patient respond to fluids by increasing organ perfusion and cardiac output? Sheeta Medical's Starling SV Hemodynamic System provides continuous and accurate volume management insight for patients across the continuum of care. Individualized volume management is critical as evolving and growing evidence is showing approximately 50% of hemodynamically unstable patients will not respond to fluids. Cheetah's 100% non-invasive system provides dynamic assessments and trending of stroke volume to guide fluid management decisions. Answer the vital fluid and perfusion question, will my patient respond to fluid? For your patients, with Cheetah's non-invasive and simple-to-use hemodynamic system. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, we will be speaking with Mitchell Levy, MD, MCCM, about the release of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, International Guidelines for Management of Sepsis and Septic Shock 2016, presented at the 46th Critical Care Congress in Honolulu, Hawaii. Dr. Levy is Professor of Medicine and the Division Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Brown University School of Medicine in Providence, Rhode Island. Welcome, Dr. Levy. Thank you, Dr. Lin. Good to be here. And I'm really glad that we get a chance to be able to record this podcast and discuss these recommendations that are being released uh, right now. Maybe I could just get you to talk to our audience about the most important new points about these guidelines compared to the previous one. I'd be happy to. I think uh, my sense in thinking about this is it's probably more important to emphasize what hasn't changed before I talk about what has changed. Because I think that since this is the third uh, revision and the fourth iteration of the guidelines, it's important to mention what's been consistent all along and what, in fact, has been shown to improve outcomes and save lives in sepsis. And that is, one, uh, now more than ever, it's well understood that early identification is an essential aspect of sepsis management. Two, uh, sepsis care should be seen as an urgency. Manny Rivers first talked about the golden hour of sepsis, and now more than ever, that's really true. Uh, Third, the need for rapid institution of appropriate antibiotics has not changed at all. In fact, in this iteration, we again strongly recommend antibiotics within an hour of the identification of a patient with sepsis. And finally, aggressive early fluid resuscitation. So again, in this iteration, the uh, recommendation is for 30 cc's per kilogram of crystalloid. So that is the kind of crux of sepsis management that really hasn't changed. And I think that's really important to emphasize. What has changed are some of the ways in which we approach that, but the urgency, the need for early identification, the imperative to get antibiotics on board early, and the need for early fluid resuscitation are all the same as they were before. I think probably what's changed primarily, as as all of our listeners know, is the er, what used to be early goal-directed therapy that was identified by Manny Rivers in the seminal publication in 2001 has been followed up by three separate trials, international large randomized controlled trials, that have essentially shown that there is no need to mandate central line insertion on every patient with severe sepsis or septic shock. 
and there is no need to formally protocolize the approach to resuscitation and sepsis. Now, and probably more importantly, the need to mandate measurement of central venous pressure and central venous oxygen saturation is is no longer the primary way to monitor resuscitation during sepsis. I, I would emphasize that, and this is really important, usual care has changed. And if you look at process, promise, and arise, the three large randomized control trials, and you, you can observe that there was no difference between the control group, the usual care arm, and the early goal-directed therapy group, that is, central line for everybody, measurement of central venous pressure, measurement of central venous oxygen saturation. However, the usual care arm, both arms, before they got randomized, received 30 cc's per kilogram uh, of fluid resuscitation. They received early antibiotics. So the caveat to understanding that the three trials were negative is that that's as long as you work in an environment that gives 30 cc's of fluids immediately and early appropriate antibiotics early. So it goes back to my initial statement that as long as that's not changing, then it does look like we don't need to mandate a central line if you don't have hypotension or the measurement of CVP and central venous oxygen saturation. And I think that's the most important change in the guidelines this year. That makes a lot of sense. And can you discuss a little bit about how you and the rest of the committee arrived at um, these modifications to the guidelines? Well, there were, I believe it's 52, there were 52 panel members from all across the world, uh, primarily Europe and North America. And we looked at, uh, we worked with the folks from the uh, grade group, the evidence-based analysis group. We did evidence-based tables of review of the literature that was all that were all done since the previous guidelines in 2012, so four years. And we for each topic, we created, we looked at the new literature, did a literature search, and then built evidence tables where we ranked the evidence based on the grade process. And then from that made a recommendation. So for instance, uh, the recommendation is we recommend that in the resuscitation from sepsis-induced hypoperfusion, at least 30 cc's per kilogram of intravenous crystalloid fluid be given within the first three hours. And that's a strong recommendation, but with low quality of evidence. So that's a very good example. We realize that there's never been a large randomized controlled trial that has looked at the amount of fluids to give. And whether it's fortunately or unfortunately, that's a matter of debate, there has been a widespread adoption of 30 cc's per kilogram as the standard of care in resuscitation. So if, if you look at Promise, Process, and Arise, those all three trials, before randomization, all patients got 30 cc's per kilogram. So that's now the standard of care for administering fluids before you do anything else in sepsis. So it's almost impossible now to subject 30 cc's per kilogram to a randomized controlled trial because you've got three trials that show the use of 30 cc's as the baseline. 
it's become standard of care, and it certainly identifies useful care. So that's a good example of an intervention for which there's a low quality of evidence but has a strong recommendation. The same thing is true for strong recommendation of antibiotics within one hour of identification of a patient of sepsis, which is a strong recommendation but a low quality of evidence. Again, there will never be a randomized controlled trial on delaying antibiotics versus giving it quickly because the standard of care now that has been shown in multiple observational trials is that the longer you delay the administration of antibiotics, the higher your risk of mortality. So again, it's become the standard of care to give antibiotics within an hour, and I don't think that'll ever be subjected to a randomized controlled trial. So that's a good illustration of how we come to strong recommendations, even though the quality of evidence based on randomized controlled trials is low. I think that's worth really us making sure the, that the audience listens to that and understands that, because in the guidelines, a lot of the points do come with explanation that they are a high level of recommendation, but maybe moderate or low uh, quality of evidence. But your point is a lot of these best practice uh, standards now are so widely adapted that it's impossible, like you just mentioned, to actually subject those to studies. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I've, I've sat on review panels for grants that have been submitted to uh, look at randomized controlled trials for delays of antibiotics. And it may well be sometime in the future, if there's enough controversy, that somebody would be willing, that there would be enough clinical equipoise of a delay of antibiotics that that would be subjected to a randomized controlled trial. I would not be able ethically to participate as either an investigator or as a patient in that. I think that many of us, and I, obviously as all of us, we go to these conferences all the time, some of my intelligent, brilliant, wonderful academic colleagues will get on a stage and try to argue that you don't need to give antibiotics quickly. But we all know that if that academic colleague has a loved one come into the emergency department, they're not going to suggest that we really wait to give them an antibiotic. That the, the best way, and we're going to talk a lot about this during this conference, to feel comfortable giving rapid antibiotics is to marry rapid institution of antibiotics with antibiotic stewardship. Nobody would argue that given an antibiotic, giving an antibiotic within an hour, but de-escalating it as quickly as possible by assessing whether or not infection is present within 24 hours is bad. And I think that's a good example of why you can make a strong recommendation with a relatively low quality of evidence. Yes, that's a great point. You speaking about the rapid de-escalation of antibiotics makes me want to ask you a little bit more about one of the points you made in here uh, in the guidelines about the use of biomarkers. How, how do you feel about that, both as part of the committee and you, you personally as a practitioner? Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple of important points. First of all, there, it's acknowledging that there's a real problem in, in intensive care units and in hospitals in general, which is that once antibiotics get started, they just continue, period. And the, well, although we talk about antibiotic stewardship, really we wind up treating people for 14 days because the evidence isn't really clear about how long to treat people. When actually, and we all do this hopefully on rounds, 
No one would argue, I hope, that giving an antibiotic appropriately and early is a bad idea. But what we should be doing is the first, the next time we see that patient on rounds, first thing in the morning, we should be saying, do we really think this patient is infected? Is this, are these bilateral infiltrates from a viral illness? Is this congestive heart failure? Or is this really a bacterial process or another process that requires an antibiotic or an antifungal agent? They, so just first, asking that question is the most important first step. Reassessing the need for antibiotics almost as soon as you give the first dose, to me, is the first step. The second step is understanding that other than, apart from a bacteremia, the duration of antibiotics rarely needs to be longer than seven to 10 days. And unfortunately, as we all know, in hospitals, those orders get lost. And suddenly you, you see these patients who've been on antibiotics for more than 14 days for no reason. So the second point is to limit the duration of antibiotic therapy to something that is appropriate, like seven to 10 days. And then the third thing I would say is, I do think procalcitonin can be a helpful adjunct in the de-escalation of antibiotics. Um, a, a low procalcitonin level can be very, very valuable when you're asking yourself, after three days of a patient in whom you know there was a documented infection, do I still need these antibiotics? The problem is, procalcitonin is great when it's low, but when it's high, it tells you nothing, because we know that procalcitonin tracks severity of illness. So. All a high procalcitonin level tells you is the patient's still sick. It doesn't tell you the patient's still infected. So it's not unlike a CVP. A CVP is only helpful in a patient who's hypotensive when it's four or two. That's great. But when a patient's hypotensive and a CVP is eight, 10, 12, it tells you nothing at all about fluids. So in many ways, the common misunderstanding of CVP is very similar to the inappropriate way procalcitonin is being used, which is when it's high, you add antibiotics, which we should never be doing. Procalcitonin is good because when it's low, if it matches the clinical picture, it should make the clinician more comfortable de-escalating antibiotics. Okay. It's nice to know that you support the use of calcitonin in that situation. Um, I wanted to ask you about some of the other patient populations that uh, have sepsis. It, it sounds like there will be a separate pediatric recommendation. Is that right? That's correct. Pediatric guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, for the first time, uh, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has appointed a uh, chairs and uh, impaneled a group to develop pediatric guidelines for the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. It'll probably be with luck a year, most likely two years before that publication comes out. Do you have any feelings about the obstetric population with sepsis? Should, should we consider that as a subset, or do, do they deserve a separate guideline? I I, that's a great question. I know the World Health Organization just convened a meeting um, and invited the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and the Society of Critical Care Medicine to participate. I think that there's a recognition that infections and sepsis in this population is a particular concern because it threatens two patients, not just one patient. Most of these folks are cared for in adult ICUs, obviously. Uh, I don't think you'll see a separate set of guidelines, but I think you'll see a separate set of cautions and recommendations that are specific to the obstetric population um, 
because of uh, there being a pregnancy in terms of drugs used and um, fluids used, etc. Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to circle back uh, to another uh, part of the guidelines that I found very interesting, the emphasis on dynamic hemodynamic assessment compared to static hemodynamic assessment. And the guidelines discuss measures such as the leg raise, uh, stroke volume, variation in uh, the systolic blood pressure, or variation in the stroke volume or the pulse pressure. If you could just elaborate on that for me. Yes. Again, one of the, I would say it's one of the main controversies for the surviving sepsis campaign, but I think this is, I don't know if the right word is haunted, but it is one of the banes of critical care for the last 40 years, which is what is adequate? How much is enough? After 40 years of trying various monitoring techniques, we still can't define adequate resuscitation. We can say, well, it's when the tissues, uh, when supply and demand are balanced. We can use all of this terminology, but when it comes to really practically applying it, we do not have a gold standard that defines when you can stop resuscitating a patient. And that's the source of all the controversy. Everybody has their own favorite monitoring technique. And so for years, because of the Many Rivers study, we were able to like hook our wagon, so to speak, on CVP and SCVO2, which, of course, it was fraught with a lot of problems, and people made careers attacking it, when, in fact, there is no alternative that we now present. And that's where it's really painful. So, yes, dynamic measures uh, of hemodynamics are certainly more physiologically sound than static measures. And there's a debate in conference after conference after conference of the the value of dynamic over static and the value of this monitoring technique over that monitoring technique, intravenous uh, IVC ultrasound, uh, transesophageal Dopplers, PICO, LIDCO, uh, pulse pressure variation, uh, flow track. I'm sure I'm leaving out some of them. And the truth is, it would be great if there was one monitoring system that finally proved to be the best because then we could put it in the guidelines, we can say this is what you should use and we'd be done with it. But there's, there's controversy in literature on both sides about the value of passive leg raising. There's controversy and arguments on both sides about all the monitoring techniques that I just suggested. So I actually think it's unfortunate. All we can offer is a table of use one of these, pick your favorite. And yet we still hear at various conferences different investigators because of their own intellectual bias, arguing that there's one technique that's better than the others, when the truth is, right now, in 2017, we have to say that you pick what your favorite is and that's what you stick with. I think, in fact, I know that the recommendation from, from the campaign for, for hemodynamics is as a best practice statement. It's, we recommend that following initial fluid resuscitation, additional fluids be guided by frequent reassessment of hemodynamic status. And that's a best practice statement. So that's like, as we say, mom and apple pie. That is, well, you have to give 30 cc's in the beginning. And now that CVP and SCVO2 are are clearly no longer the gold standard, just pick one and use it. To me, it sounds like the committee is making a conscious decision to really bring people back to clinical acumen and using one's clinical assessment rather than 
rely on a particular te technology to, to, to measure the progression of resuscitation. Is that safe to say? Yeah. So Ludwig, that's a great question because it, given a minimum standard of 30 cc's per kilogram, that is exactly right. We now have to turn it, we, we turn it over to the clinician and say to the bedside practitioner, use your judgment, look at your patient. After 30 cc's per kilogram, do they need more? Do they need less? Use it, whatever hemodynamic monitoring technique works for you, use it to reassess and decide whether they need more. The problem is, and this is my jaded side coming out, that while you go to conferences and you hear these brilliant academics talk about their monitoring technique, most clinicians don't do it at the bedside. Most clinicians just give a bunch of fluid, and at a certain point, they decide to stop. And I don't know if that's good or bad, and I'm sure many of you out there are thinking, that's not how I do it, but when I look at my house staff, and I see what they do in the middle of the night. They just give more fluid, and someone gets hypotensive, and they give them even more fluid. And, and so I, I wish it was really a matter of going to the bedside and doing careful evaluation. And based on that careful evaluation, we give or don't give fluid. But I think it's a little more vague than that. Right. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. Um, while we are... Uh discussing these vague areas. I, I would like to actually um, ask you about something that I'm sure is making a lot of administrators a little bit nervous, which is the, um, the definitions for the various states of sepsis. It's changed with the new guidelines. And for a lot of people who've instituted algorithms, that, you know, that obviously is going to change the workflow. So the category of severe sepsis no longer appears. And I wanted to ask you about uh, how that's going to align with the, you know, official diagnosis codes and um, how that's going to affect people's ways of, you know, billing, getting reimbursement. Have outreach efforts been made with the government to, to, to work on these issues? So I would say that uh, the best way to describe my view on this is cognitive dissonance. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was part of, obviously, the panel uh, for SEP3, and I feel strongly that the change in terminology really reflects clinical use of the term. And I, every talk I give, I'll, I'll look at the audience and I'll say, so when you sign out to your colleague about a patient uh, who you're worried about, you say, keep your eye on Mrs. Jones. I think she's getting... And most of us would say septic. Very few of us would say, I think she's getting severely septic. We mean she has a simple infection right now, and I think she's developing organ dysfunction and get, going to get sick and maybe hypotensive. But we say septic, even though with the old definitions, sepsis was two out of four SIRS or some combination of signs and symptoms of inflammation and a documented or suspected source of infection. So... When I'm home with a bronchitis and a fever and chills and my heart rate goes up and I'm drinking very much, until February of 2016, I was septic, when really not many of us think of sepsis that way. So I think that the decision of the panel to match the actual definition with the clinical use of the term, I think, was wise, and that is... It's infection, like pneumonia, urinary tract infection, central line bloodstream infection, 
that is, defines what used to be called sepsis, and that when organ dysfunction develops on top of an infection, then we call it sepsis, and when there's persistent hypotension with an elevated lactate and the need for vasopressors, that's a patient with septic shock. To me, that's an accurate clinical description of the illness we treat. So that's why I say cognitive dissonance, because I'm comfortable with that. However, the ICD-10 codes, upon which most of us live and die because of the need for appropriate reimbursement for our time and services, are very slow to change. So from an ICD-10 point of view, uh, reimbursement is based on the terms sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. So the hospital and the clinician gets reimbursed by demonstrating the higher acuity of a patient. So unfortunately, I often suggest to clinicians, write sepsis, but bill severe sepsis. So use the ICD-10 code for severe sepsis, even though you're using the terminology of sepsis. The problem with that that's starting to happen is third-party payers are reviewing charts, and if all they see clinicians say is sepsis, but the coders are coding for the higher acuity severe sepsis because they see organ dysfunction, because they see shock, those claims are being denied. And so there really is a problem that's brewing, and this is pretty much United States-based, but there really is a problem of people who are caring for severe septic patients who are very sick, but because they're saying sepsis, they're being downcoded because they're refusing to, the third-party payers are saying, this is not the severe sepsis code. Look, the clinicians are just writing sepsis. So I, I'm changing what I tell clinicians now. Even though I think it's valid to say sepsis, I think for the purposes of hospitals and clinicians to build the higher codes, you really need to write severe sepsis in the, in the chart. And not only that, in the U.S., CMS, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, and the SEP1 initiative is not adopting the SEP3 definitions. They are sticking with sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. So it's a bit of a mess. So if I were going to summarize what I would say to clinicians, especially in the United States, that for the purposes of the CMS initiative and for billing, I do think you have to stick to the old definitions because otherwise it does become a mess. So therefore, if you have a patient with a simple pneumonia with no evidence of organ dysfunction, that's sepsis. If you have a patient with either a UTI or pneumonia who now has renal dysfunction or coagulopathy or a bad PF ratio, that's severe sepsis. And if you have a patient with pneumonia who's now on vasopressors and an elevated lactate, I would say septic shock. I completely agree with you. That is definitely a case of cognitive yeah. dis dissonance. And I, I totally understand what you and the committee's point is. The, the point is an intellectual one, which is sepsis defines a life-threatening situation with organ dysfunction. However, what you're acknowledging is that, practically speaking, in terms of billing and in terms of the chart documentation, which fortunately or unfortunately is a large part of what yeah. American physicians yeah. do now, in the situation of documentation, those patients 
really do need to be written down as severe sepsis. Uh, that's exactly right. And that's just the way it's going to be. And that's just the way it's going to be. And I think ultimately, over time, uh, perhaps ICD-10 codes will change. But for now, I think in order to protect ourselves, we have to use the old terminology. Right. Well, I'm glad that we talked about it because I think it's important for all of us to think intellectually about what the disease mechanism is. But then there's the flip side of it. There's the practicalities. That's right. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about how this entire surviving sepsis campaign has, has gone. How do you feel like the campaign has influenced or changed the way sepsis management is in the U.S.? Are you happy with the way implementation has gone? And how do you anticipate uh, the uh, new guidelines to be accepted? Well, a lot of questions at once. Uh, let, me, yeah. let me start with, um, I am very proud of our work with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind that we have uh, changed the way sepsis is viewed and treated on a global level. We've increased public awareness. We have changed the clinician's attitude towards sepsis. And most importantly, we've raised the level of awareness amongst national governments, not just in the United States, but all across the world. There are very few countries that I travel to now that are not pushing clinicians at a national level to develop some sepsis performance measures and performance improvement initiatives. And if you look at the work of the campaign, in 2015, we published the result of 30,000 patients that uh, we collected in three continents that demonstrated that compliance with the performance measures, the bundles, was associated with improved survival. And the better your compliance, the better the mortality reduction. Those data are so compelling that two things happened in the United States. First, New York State, two years ago, started a mandated public reporting initiative for every hospital in New York State on sepsis. And then about a year ago, the CMS mandated public reporting for sepsis nationally. The New York State Initiative, uh, I've been working with them as a consultant, and we now have two years' worth of data that we're about to submit for publication that shows a statistically significant risk-adjusted mortality decline, very similar to what we demonstrated in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, that there was a decline no matter what you did with some compliance, but the higher your compliance, the more your mortality declined in your hospital over the two-year period. So I feel there's still, for some reason, and I think it's just scientists just love to argue, but there's still some pushback about the value of sepsis bundles. However, when you look in the literature, and now there are a couple of meta-analyses that show that every study that's looked at using sepsis bundles to drive changes in care to be consistent with best practice models results in a reduced association with a reduced mortality. So I think conclusively in the literature you can say that the bundles developed by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign are now associated with improved outcomes. And as far as how do I think these new guidelines will be accepted, well, first of all, there's always controversy about everything. I think I've already heard Many people still don't like uh, the urgency of antibiotics, and they still don't like 30 cc's per kilogram. And I think, in general, for all of us in the trenches who are really caring for patients, when you think about it, early institution of appropriate antibiotics should be our standard of care. Most of us agree with that. 
And 30 cc's per kilogram is usually about two liters of fluid. And what I like to say, as an intensivist, I never see a patient who has not already received two to three liters of fluid. So a lot of the academic argument that I hear from my intensivist colleagues, I, I kind of wonder why we're talking about it. Because I honestly don't know the last time I saw a patient come up from our emergency department who had not received at least three to five liters of fluid if they're there for a long period of time. So this whole debate about 30 cc's per kilogram is an emergency department debate. That doesn't mean it's not important. It's just the intensivists are not the ones really having this argument. And we shouldn't fool ourselves. Now, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, usual care is 30 cc's per kilogram. Is it possible that there are some patients that probably don't need 30? I would acknowledge that. However, I came from an era where people didn't get any fluid when they were septic. So now that we give 30, I think we save more lives than by giving 30 cc's to everybody than the couple of patients in whom we might make their renal failure worse or their congestive heart failure worse. I think if we're going to say one message, it's give fluids to these folks. And I stand by that still. And so do the data. Sounds good. Fluids and early antibiotics. Absolutely. That's the takeaway message. Well, I think it's very inspirational to uh, be able to talk to you about how things have gone. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing how the new uh, guidelines go and get accepted. And hopefully we'll work out the cognitive dissonance that we just discussed. I agree. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And this concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast program, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. As clinicians, you make vital fluid and drug decisions for your patients every day with a key question in mind. Will my patient respond to fluids by increasing organ perfusion and cardiac output? Sheeta Medical's Starling SV Hemodynamic System provides continuous and accurate volume management insight for patients across the continuum of care. Individualized volume management is critical as evolving and growing evidence is showing approximately 50% of hemodynamically unstable patients will not respond to fluids. Cheetah's 100% non-invasive system provides dynamic assessments and trending of stroke volume to guide fluid management decisions. Answer the vital fluid and perfusion question, will my patient respond to fluid? For your patients, with Cheetah's non-invasive and simple-to-use hemodynamic system. Ludwig Lin, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altibates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. 
To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.